This is a Federal News Network podcast. For more than a decade, the Air Force Association and Northrop Grumman have conducted the Cyber Patriot National Youth Cyber Defense Competition, matching teams of middle and high school students who find and fix cybersecurity flaws. Winners were announced last week. Here with more about the program, Cyber Patriot Commissioner and retired Brigadier General Bernie Scotch. Bernie, good to have you back. Thanks, Tom. It's always good to be on Federal News Network. It's great to be here. Tell us about this program generally. Refresh our memories on how this works every year, because it's really exciting, I think, for the associations and the companies and the kids involved. Well, it's trying to address a national need, Tom. And uh, if you look at the history of the Air Force Association since 1946, we've been advocates of strong national security. And that takes many forms. Certainly national defense is part of it. But there are other elements of national security, including technological superiority, including a strong economy and an educated public. So the Air Force Association started this initiative really as a national program in 2010 with a pilot program because we want to attract young women and young men to STEM, to science, technology, engineering, math. And at its core, that's the purpose of the program. And in recruiting the teams that compete, give us a sense of how many people are involved, how many students are involved, and how you recruit them and get them involved. Well, the program has evolved significantly since it started. With our pilot program, we had eight teams, about six kids apiece, in the state of Florida in 2009, 2010. This past year, we had nearly 5,000 teams in all 50 states, Canada, overseas uh, locations of Department of Defense schools and other friendly nations to the U.S. The teams form up in a school. They learn the basics of cybersecurity from online training that we provide. And then uh, with the cooperation of a lot of partners, we ship them problems to solve and they see who can find and fix what's wrong with networks. We estimate from that modest beginning in 2009 of eight teams that we've now reached about a quarter million students and they're excited about the program. Northrop Grumman and the Northrop Grumman Foundation have supported the program since its inception and have given out about a quarter million dollars in scholarships for the program, as has Cisco. 5,000 teams, and that means just in this year, well, yes. how many are on a team then? How many, how yeah, about six kids on a team. What we're thrilled with, of course, Tom, now is we've been around long enough, we're starting to see the results. And we've got uh, hard data that shows that because students participate in this program, they actually are attracted more to STEM careers and education and career tracks. And that's important for the nation. You know, right now, and you can find any number you want, but the most accepted number is that there are about three and a half million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. And we're feeding that workforce. And there's been a lot of studies that have suggested that if you want to shape a student's interest in a particular career track, you've got to reach them about the ninth grade. You can't wait till they're a college graduate. You can't wait till they're ready to go into the workforce. You've got to stimulate that interest in STEM early. And that's what the Air Force Association Cyber Patriot Program is all about. It sounds like a major thing to administer, just having 30,000 students online and competing. I guess 30,000 people online is not that big a number in this day and age. But how does it all work mechanically? Because they can't all gather in a convention center, at least not this past year. Yeah, what a great question, Tom. And we've adapted remarkably to the COVID pandemic. But uh, it starts with online training. And they go through 12 modules of learning what a network is, what a firewall is, what a router is, and all those basic things. And mind you, Tom, we're dealing with middle school students in many cases. So we've got middle schoolers that are learning about cyber vulnerabilities. We only teach them defensive skills. We're smart enough to know that a student that learns to be a good defender may learn some offensive techniques, but that's why we infuse cyber ethics and everything that we do with them. After they go through these online modules of instruction, we encrypt these gigantic files. 
and they pretend to be a network administrator and they get to work and find, well, this password is, is expired. These firewalls are open. These routers have all the default settings. The user that shouldn't have been on the system six months ago is still on the system. And then we've got automatic software that we developed with the University of Texas at San Antonio that scores them and they get immediate feedback. They fix the vulnerabilities, they get scored. And then in a typical year, which we hope to return to next season, they are flowing all expenses paid to the national championship where the 28 teams compete in person to see who's best at this. But now they've got a red team penetrating their networks and they've got to fend off these red teams while they're keeping critical services up. And Tom, there's no more humorous sight than a middle schooler sitting there fending off red teams. We're having to bring in booster seats in some cases for these kids that are defending networks. Wow, sounds like a lot of fun, actually, too. We're speaking with retired Air Force Brigadier General Bernie Scotch, now Commissioner of the Cyber Patriot National Youth Cyber Defense Competition. And I imagine there's a technical upkeep that you have to do to keep the problems current, because what is a solved, understood issue in cyber one year gives way to something exotic and new the next year or the next week even. You are spot on. And there's a couple of factors at work here. One is just what you described, that the sophistication of the attacks, the complexity of the systems increases every year. But what we're finding is that the students are getting better, too, because we have a lot of repeat offenders, if you will, these kids that come back year after year. We designate cyber All-Americans for students that reach the national finals all four years of their high school career. We've only had about a dozen of those since the program began. But think about it. It's about twice as difficult from a field of five or 6,000 teams to be one of the top 28 that reaches the national finals competition. It's about twice as tough as a basketball team in the NCAA, women or men, reaching the final four. These students have distinguished themselves remarkably. And this is a program of the Air Force Association, though. Do you find that the Air Force itself is kind of interested and says, hey, Bernie, what's going on? Any, any good possible recruits coming out of this? Oh, what a great, great question. You bet. Because not only the Air Force, but all the military departments, all the federal sector, right now there's about 31,000 open jobs in the public sector, meaning government and the military for cybersecurity professionals. They want this talent. But so does Northrop Grumman, so does Boeing, so does AT&T, so does Cisco. And that's why, in many respects, why they have become such avid supporters of the program. We've got a wonderful cadre of sponsors. And they see the value to the nation of developing this group of students into the cyber defenders of tomorrow. All right. And are you aware of any students that have gone on to the armed services specifically? We have a litany of of these people. We have Rhodes Scholars that have gone through our program. We've got full ride scholarship. We've got academy graduates. We've got professionals in industry. We've got students that have risen from the ghettos of urban blight to become cybersecurity engineers because this program caught their eye. And that's why we're so grateful for the support that we get from industry and from government. Yeah, that was a question I had. What do you see in terms of diversity of the students that participate and are girls there as much as boys? What a great question. Again, the typical STEM program in the United States recruits about 12 percent female participation. We incentivize female participation. A typical team will pay $200 for the year to register. We register all female teams for free. And so we've driven female participation up to about 27% or double the national average. Our minority participation underrepresented populations is about 42%. So we're working very hard because we want this to be an opportunity for everyone. And we need everyone pitching in. We can't have populations declare, well, that's not for me. We want everyone to see this as a career track. And it's not just about the white collar computer science PhD track, 
we need uh, people in the careers that, that are blue collar, if you will, that are doing the system administration work at corporate America and in the public sector. Sure. In many ways, that level of work, say what we call the blue collar, for lack of a better term, is very different from, say, factory type of work, which also takes skill. But the difference is that every night you're on the cyber job or every day you're on the cyber job, there's a different challenge coming in. So even though the processes might be similar, you're using your brain as much as your typing fingers. Well, you're on to two points, I think, Tom. One is uh, we don't know what stimulates interest in cybersecurity. We don't know what background attracts people to that or software development. Is it an artistic talent? Is it a technical talent? Is it an analytical talent? And the other element that you raised is, is about compensation. Cybersecurity jobs pay very well. But as you point out, the compensation isn't all financial. It, it's emotional. It's psychological compensation. You're not putting hubcaps on a car. You're doing something that's stimulating, something that requires an element of creativity and something in which you have a good deal of intellectual freedom to pursue ideas where they take you. And just briefly, what do we know about the winning teams this year? Well, you know, it's it's kind of like the NCAA Final Four. And you see on the, on the women's side, you'll see the Tennessees of the year, year in and year out. And you'll see a few others. And on the uh, uh, men's side, you'll see North Carolina and Duke. So we get our repeat people who, who consistently do well. But we're thrilled that we have teams that came to the national finals from all over the country this year. So it's about half regulars and half new blood, and we think that's healthy for the program. It's growing like crazy. Of course, COVID took a toll on us because a lot of schools weren't meeting in session in person. But uh, our growth curve is phenomenal, and we expect to get back to full program participation this coming season. Retired Air Force Brigadier General Bernie Scotch is commissioner of the Cyber Patriot National Youth Cyber Defense Competition. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, it's always a pleasure. Stay in touch. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside 
their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired others and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves, and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation, uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've led this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.